Welcome to the Game Changers podcast. We are your hosts, Associate Professor of Education and Enterprise, Philip Cummins. And prominent educational thought leader, Adriana Prado. The Game Changers podcast aims to not only put a spotlight on the innovative ideas shaping the landscape of 21st century schooling, but to enter into a deep dialogue with those brave pioneers, the true game changers in education. Those individuals that don't wait for permission, leaders in education who are actually courageous enough to make real change in their learning community, as they foster the growth of each young person in their care to ultimately thrive in a new world environment. These are their stories. After 40 years as an educator within existing systems, Stephen Harris is currently choosing to work now outside, but alongside traditional education. He founded the Sydney Centre for Innovation in Learning while he was principal of Northern Beaches Christian School. He's now the co-founder and director of Learning Innovation at Learn Life Barcelona, originally our dream school. He's a really interesting person who's been at the forefront of innovation in learning contexts all around the world. We're really excited to talk to him today. Let's go. Well, Philip, it's uh, great to be with you once again and also to have Stephen with us. I have uh, very, very fond memories, Stephen, of uh, an opportunity to go to Barcelona a number of years ago when you facilitated uh, an amazing bilingual conference with a Catholic school a series of nuns I think you still have a strong association with and I just found that to be a, an enormous uh, uplifting learning experience where uh, here I was tweeting along the way about whatever the nun was saying in Spanish but of course I was hearing it translated to me in English and then they were responding to me on the Twitter in Spanish reading my English I just thought it was a, a fascinating kind of uh, place to be in. anyway let's get started so Stephen can you tell us a little bit about your story and how you have gotten to where you are today? Yeah, well, I, I have been in in Australian schools for over four decades, and uh, no regrets for that. It's um, been in every type of system. I started off as a government school primary teacher. I had trained at university for secondary teaching, but they were no jobs, so that they encouraged us to retrain in primary. I did take a year and taught on Norfolk Island, which was part of the New South Wales education sort of jurisdiction at the time. Um, I taught secondary school in the government system in Australia. And then I was initially hesitant about the independent school system, but a job came up and it just seemed perfect for me. It wanted someone with primary and secondary training and someone with a passion for welfare. And so that was the... uh, I guess the move in the 1990s was to become deputy principal of a school in the Blue Mountains um, in that role. And then uh, in 1999, I got the opportunity to become principal at Northern Beaches Christian School. And at the time, it was a fairly small school, uh, about 300 kids, and they had a vision to have it grown to over a 1,000. And... Uh, I had full license to, to try and grow the school and put it onto the international field as a school of excellence. So I, I had an amazing opportunity with um, the board chair at the time, a guy called Peter King, who, who from his own wisdom and board governance experience, uh, he'd been on World Vision, he'd been on a number of not-for-profits, I guess very much lived the, the, the notion that a board was there to help set vision and direction, not to run the school. And so he gave me a lot of lot of license and freedom to do things, and I really appreciated that. And so that so I then was at Northern Beaches for for nineteen years. Um, during that time, I had started a PhD and was making 
frustrated progress and uh, I guess had to make decisions about how I concluded that journey. And then for me, it became obvious that uh, I'd never taken leave and um, I could sort of combine everything into one, step back from being a principal, finish off the PhD. And at the same time, the, um, my friends in Barcelona were wanting to start something different and they reached out and said, was I interested? So all of that sort of happened concurrently and finished up then outside the system within Spain, um, working in a school and then also working remotely from Australia. So I, for the last two years, I've actually lived across two cities, Sydney and Barcelona. I've had to learn new languages. I've, I've, uh, being challenged about multilingualism within schools. And then also, I guess it becomes crystal clear what the issues are in the system when you're stepping outside of it. You've been a, a great pioneer and champion of wellbeing structures within schools and learning and those things kind of having a strong interdependence. And uh, it's, it was very clear with even the architecture of the school here in Australia that you were leading for, for so long it was a totally kind of new paradigm for what people would even think schooling would look like. That was an important thing for you to undertake so that people started thinking about learning differently. So for you, what, what can you share with our listeners about what you believe learning to be in today's world? You know, I'm often asked what's at the core of a learning paradigm um, shift. And I said, well, it's actually exactly what was there beforehand. It's relationship is that I think that, you know, the biggest issue for me is that despite every good intention from universities or colleges that are training teachers, they focus on content and delivery and control management. They don't focus on relationship. And for me, the, um, you know, the essence of a good teacher, however they're teaching, is that if they're managing to actually create good relationships with kids, you know, you might have a teacher that's all chalk and talk, but if they, if they have got good relationship with kids, the chances are that model is going to work quite well because it comes down to the relationship and so it's I mean for me technology is the secondary issue that the spatial design should support the relationships and I guess that's why I had no problem saying let's do something completely different because if we if we genuinely want to place relationships at the core of what we're doing well we have to facilitate it in terms of the space and uh, yeah I can remember at the time that we were designing things there was a um a newspaper article about a school in Sydney where the year six parents were up in arms because their their class was going to be located in the year seven space of a neighbouring high school because they were running out of space and that they were sort of going into meltdown about the concept of year six sitting in the high school. And I just thought at the same time we were designing a space where five-year-olds could interact with 18-year-olds as they do in a lounge room and thought, why are you worrying about you know, an arbitrary fence. So if we accept the premise that at the heart of education is the relationship between the teachers and their learners, where, where that kind of social exchange is occurring between them, and everything else should be focused on making that the best possible relationship in, in a kind of learning community. Can you share with our listeners a little bit how that is achieved at Learn Life? We moved to an almost um, replica of a survivor type interview process. We did that at actually Northern Beaches for a while, but we, we've done it even more so in Spain. Um, you can't take a teacher and expect them to survive in an environment where everything is totally different in terms of relationships and transparency if they can't cope in a transparent world. So, so one of the things that we, we do is we're, we're very deliberate in the interview process to replicate as much as possible what, what it would be like working here. Now, whether that's with kids or whatever else, um, 
the, the last time we actually appointed a new teacher and then we call them the learning guides over there the process finished up with a cluster of three applicants together needing to walk the 35 kids two blocks in the street in Barcelona to a park uh, share an anecdote about anything for two minutes and then walk them back but what they also knew was that we'd actually got three or four kids to act out certain scenarios that they which they wouldn't know about then they would have to respond to and uh and it was, it was a very interesting process for me because the person we appointed in the end was a person retraining into teaching as a late 20-year-old, had been in another uh, industry, against all the other candidates who were experienced teachers. But he was the only one who actually was seeing what was going on around in the street because we had a couple of kids lined up to get focused on their mobile phones and to miss the pedestrian crossing, and he picked it up within a second. We had, um, we had a couple of little actors who wanted to sort of you know, run out a, uh, a fight between the two of them verbally in the middle of the anecdote. And again, a couple of the, uh, the experienced teachers unfortunately pushed their way through and, and they didn't even respond to that one. Whereas, you know, I, I guess in that process, we're looking for people's ability to be intuitive, um, relational and ultimately trustworthy. Stephen, Stephen, I'm just wondering, with what you're talking about there, and in particular that that focus on on noticing one one of uh, our good friends and uh, and 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 client at St David's School in Manhattan Jamie McNeil is the director of teaching and learning there and she places great emphasis on the importance of listening and noticing in a class space or any learning context do you think it's possible to teach teachers to listen and to notice or is it something innate um, that's a very good question. I think I'd have to say ultimately it is possible to teach them if they were, if they want to be taught, if, if teachers want to change. Because I guess what you're having to do is you're having to shake out an old paradigm out of them. And when you go through university or teacher's college, you're, you're supervised as a solo teacher and on your capacity to manage and control a group of kids. And that, that's really when it comes down to it what a supervisor is looking for. You know, are the kids out of control? Is this person able to manage this group of kids however they do it? And are they able to do it in a pleasant way? That's a very, very shocking stereotype, but it's that's getting right back to the, the basic. The, the problem is people have been trained in one thing. If you think of Alvin Toffler's comment about the 21st century being the, the century of unlearning, unlearning and relearning, you know, for teachers, that's what we have to do. We have to, we have to then say, one aspect of our day is all about that. And I know that it's very, very easy to do things inside a space relationally, but then you know, how do you, how do you get kids to line up outside? You know, I've watched kids who have been in environments where it's highly relational inside and very functional, but then they stand outside a room and they get into a line of boys and girls when they've never been asked to. And it's all about control and stuff. And I, I can remember throwing out the challenge to teachers back at Northern Beaches and saying, is there anyone that can come up with a new narrative about how do you get kids from the playground into a classroom without them lining up? in that way. Uh, I, I quite like the videos that you've had from America where they've done the slap dancing or whatever else, you know, you've got funny handshakes and stuff at the doorway that are individualised for kids because that's someone's attempt to try and break down that that sense that kids have to be marshalled and then brought into a space. It's a hard challenge, but I think people can learn. So then how would you recognise somebody who gets relationship right? <laughs> Very good question. Part of my thesis was was around the whole issue of how does how can vision drive change, collective vision in a community. And the three schools that I focused on, 
the one struggle they had everywhere was people who were very um, intellectually aligned with collaboration were still struggling to know how do they collaborate because they've never been in a context where that's been the the, um, the main, I guess, way of modelling or, or operating within the environment. So you might have teachers that team teach together, but they're actually, it's, I, I, I use the example and say, well, just imagine it's a, a game of soccer and you're on the bench. You know, at any time you're going to get called into the play in any position. You have to know where the ball is and you have to know what's been happening on the field. You have to know what the opposition is like. You have to be able to step into that role. I guess for me, collaboration is that. You actually have to be very intuitive about who you're, who's on your team. You have to be aware of what's happening with the kids and you have to be able to step into this role, which is probably as exciting but also as exhausting as a game of soccer. I, I think for, for adults, because regrettably the adult teachers they, they, no, they haven't been taught this mode of operation and so therefore even the most aligned person intellectually can struggle and can take some time so they've got to be prepared to push through that. Your uh, Chief Empowerment Officer, I love that phrase by the way Stephen, so his name is Christopher Pomerini, is that correct? Yes. yes. Yep. He, he, um, I read an interview recently where he made the, the following statement that more than ever we are going to have to develop our most human qualities creativity, adaptability, original thinking, and collaboration are all going to be key concepts in the workplace as well as in learning environments. That's something that when I read that, you know, resonates with me because it's something that I've definitely been talking about for quite some time now as we try and assist young people with the necessary skills to flourish in this kind of new world environment. Again, can you talk a little bit about how Learn Life is realising that kind of values proposition in what you've created there in Barcelona? It's been an interesting journey for us because we, we set up the space for 16-year-olds and older so that within Catalonia um, and Spain, the compulsory age of school finishes at 16. So that, we, that was the intention and we haven't changed from that. But we were also given kids who are under the age of 16 because Spain has got one of the highest dropout rates in Europe of kids who don't finish school. They right. start getting out from about the age of 11 or 12. And so by the time they're 15, one in five have dropped out of school um, completely at a very young age. We also, there are a lot of expats who come into the, the region and if their kids can't speak Catalan, that they struggle in the schools. So we have finished up with um, a variety of, of ages, which was a challenge that we weren't initially planning for going through so in that context we've actually then had to look at well how, how do you how do you create a, um, a program and I, I guess for me what became clear was our program had to adapt to every child that came in in, in the normal context a child comes into a school and it's all about what classroom what timetable what courses do you want to do the child adapts to the school I guess we've turned that model completely upside down and said, okay, we actually have to adapt to every child that comes in. What does that mean? Does it mean that we have to regroup our groupings? Do we have to, re you know, if, if we've got an influx of 10, 15, 11, 12 year olds when we didn't expect it, well, then we have to then adjust what we're doing. So that's, that's we, so we have a highly agile model, basically three groups, um, they're not specifically age-based, but they there is, you know, I guess, 11 to 13, 14-year-olds, 14 to 16 and 16 and older, roughly, but then there's nothing to stop an 11-year-old being in a different group. So that those three different programs are offering what we would call a studio-based program. So there are about five different elements, components of the week. One would be connection, and that's connecting 
emotionally and um, I guess, you know, social, emotional type focus. We call that type um, real talk. So real talk is when it's really, it might be occasional directed conversations, but at other times it's what the kids come in with and they want to talk about in the safety of that group, uh, connecting with their own body. So that again, we, we, we chose a location in the centre of Barcelona that for older kids that would have been, it is highly suitable for them. But then we were also recognising with younger kids that they needed the, uh, the physical space to run around and do things. So we've had to modify where some of the, um, the the discovery components go. So that a little bit like Helsinki now. I know Helsinki has a, a concept where the whole city is part of their learning space and all teachers have to spend at least half a day out in that learning space with their class. Well, we were already having a, um, a half a day discovery we called it it could be anywhere in Barcelona it could be a museum it could be a park it could be an art gallery it could be anything that was either relevant to what we were doing or what the kids wanted to see and that would then become a, um, a catalyst for further discussion or thinking every day they have studio time so that there's now about 15 different studios so we've we've broadened what we initially had so we follow the interests of the kids but we, we have We've got fixed studios for robotics, electronics, digital manufacturing, textile, music, food, a whole range of ones. And so no matter what age the kids or what stage they're into learning, at least a, th- a third of the day will be studio-based time. For the older kids, um, the whole of their day can be studio-based if they want to. We also start at staggered time so that the the younger group comes in at nine the next group comes in at 10 and the older teenagers come in at 11 and they finish either four or five or six p.m so again we've we've had to look at the logistics of how to get them all into the studios in in what was a uh, i guess a restricted space in some ways so in that studio-based learning model um we've also we've brought in external experts which are sometimes finally university students or others who have a passion for a topic and so the blend of a learning guide the expert and a multi-age group creates a recipe for very harmonious community, basically, you know, so that you've got, you've got kids who are very comfortable with each other regardless of who they are. And I guess that's, that culture, then, it's the culture building that's important, as we all know. Yeah. Given the sorts of structures that you're talking about here, which profoundly research-driven and sound like something that if you were going to create school, you'd from scratch you'd probably do as opposed to doing what a lot of schools do which is replicate other stuff that they've inherited what are some of the metrics that the team at learn life are using to measure student growth and achievement along the way i guess for me the 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 audacious goal that i would try and reach is to say what does a world without examinations or assessment look like you know, if, that, if I wanted to have that, that's the big goal. It's, it, it's the dream, Stephen. It's the dream for all of us. But, well, yeah. I'm watching at the moment with NAPLAN being cancelled and hopefully the uh, HSC and other things will get wiped out as well. Who's going to be the brave politician that says bring them back when all of the current crisis is finished? I, I guess for me, in breaking that nexus, well, then there, there, you create two problems because we're in a, a an current and a future world already you know so that some kids are going to need qualifications are going to need certain things to get into their next step wherever that is other kids don't need it so one of the things we're doing at the moment is that kids can opt to do an online SAT program through a school in America as part of our program it's we've got the relationship there we also know that they could do a Cambridge international exam if they really wanted to none of the kids want to do that at the moment 
because um, again, we're talking about a smaller grouping of kids, about 65 kids at the moment. What, what we have started is a process that ultimately we're calling a learning vitae, not a curriculum vitae, a learning vitae. So I guess it's the portfolio of their learning, which mm -hmm. the kids train to, to self-curate. So at the end of every cycle, we have what's called a 360, and a 360 is when um, the, the, the student, the learner, has gone through a, a process for the week beforehand where they've been asked to reflect on their learning in a variety of areas and then they have to present that now the presentation um the first time it was done they all went for powerpoint of course and that was happening but then when we started to get them to see to sit, think differently and more creatively well some of them are writing a song some of them are creating a game for their parents to play like a little spin the wheel thing um and what was interesting with those ones is that they, the, the first versions of those a year and a half ago were about 20 minutes long, like the, the whole 360. Now it's hard to get the kids to shut up after an hour um, because they, they just wanted to talk about what they've learned. We, we are then tracking how can we compare the development from 360 to 360 going through and we're looking at the metrics that would be the most useful for parents, for the learners and for the learning guide. So we've just done a survey on that so we can start making sure that we, we're capturing those things that do demonstrate the growth. It's very obvious that the growth is occurring because the kids are far more articulate. We've now got to work out how do we capture that in a way that's authentic. If, you know, if, if a child was wanting to go to a university, well, then they've got to be able to put some research work up there. So we actually have to work with them to know what's the genre, how do you present it, how do you... You know, and can you update your latest version so that you've, you've got the very best example of yourself on your portfolio? What's really interesting about what you're sharing with us, Stephen, is this notion of, you know, a learner now having total autonomy and driving their own learning, curating kind of their own paths as well. And we're seeing a global yeah. movement, I believe, towards a greater personalisation of learning. But of course, people have very different definitions of that. Many of these young people that have come to learn life have previously been in a different educational setting and, and pretty yeah. much probably a mainstream Barcelona school. So Everywhere. I would imagine yeah. a lot of the schools they've come from, though, are still kind of that industrial-style model where it was learning yeah. doing being done to them as opposed to them, you know, taking ownership. How, how do they go with this, this new paradigm of permission that they perhaps didn't necessarily have previously? Okay, again, another interesting question because there's no one set pathway. If there is a big problem, it, the kids can get too comfortable in the relationships and then sort of slow their pace and momentum. So we've got to actually watch that because they simply enjoy the community. And for the first time, they're telling their parents, I want to go to school, I want to go to whatever else that they're going to. So there is that issue. I can remember there was one person who came who'd been asked to leave multiple other schools. And in that learner's first week there was a shocked look on the face because he saw teenagers relating to adults like friends <laughs> and I asked him at the end of the week what you know what's happening and he just said I can't I can't get my head around what's going on here because teenagers are talking to adults without fighting and now that's that was a very very interesting one now he, he, that person's a very very um uh, motivated person now as you know, he's made the choice to stay on longer than he was going to initially because I think he he gets what we're doing so yeah I guess the answer is that there's no one set pathway but they do all ultimately respond to trust and relationship that's the core
Stephen, I'm, I'm, I'm just wondering, and you could choose from uh, your time at Learn Life or you could choose from your time at Northern Beaches Christian School. You're, a, you're an amazing innovator. You're just one of those people that just a, a million ideas comes to you at, uh, at once and you grab these things and you put them into play. What's one idea that you tried that you'd never do again? <laughs> okay, that's a good question. Um... There's a follow-up one which is a little more positive. But... <laughs> okay, well, I mean, it's a very hard question for me because I believe that if you fail, you fail forward. So there's actually probably in reality, there's nothing that we've done that I would say don't try again because if we've learnt something from an experiment, <laughs> I guess we never experiment, but if we've learnt something from a, a trial, we've always modified and, and adjusted afterwards with the notion that what we were trying to do in the big picture was was the correct direction. I think probably if some of the stuff online initially, if, if I was, I was reading from um, Will Richardson from America over the weekend and he made a comment that if you shift online and what you're doing is online schooling, not online learning, you, it's going to be fraught with problems. And I think probably our, our early journeys into remote learning, into online learning, you know, as far back as 2006, we were too structured. And, and I guess, I, you know, since then, I've seen the benefit of kids can create the most useful online learning challenges for themselves. In fact, the adults don't need to be the ones that sit down and create this entire network of what they have to be kept busy with. And I think it's the idea. I think, you know, you, you, the online learning doesn't happen to keep kids busy. The online learning is happening to get the kids connected with things far beyond their experience. So probably that would be my answer. And that, that of itself is very interesting, given what's going on all over the world at the moment, which is this sort of rapid transition into online schooling that everybody's yeah. doing. And it'll be interesting to see how many people look at that and adapt pretty quickly because, you know, it's just a very interesting world we're in right now. What's one thing you want to do more of? I'd, I'd love to find a way of how do you go through the core concept development without becoming like a textbook? You know, that, you know if, if you're going through, we, we took a considered approach to numeracy at Learn Life. We, we picked up that if there was one area, one discipline that kids all uniformly said they hated, it was maths, <laughs> whichever country they'd come from. That was the answer. We hate maths. Um, so we actually removed it from the, what we were doing completely for a while. But what was interesting was that after a number of months, kids started asking for it. They were asking, could they, they, they suddenly worked out if they were doing um, textiles and they needed to do scaling of a particular pattern or something else. They were then asking for that. So what, what we've started to do is to bring in numeracy, mathematics and that sort of thing progressively. If I had to then think about how, what I'd like to have more time to consider and to work out would be, what does that look like across the entire curriculum? If you, if you then push the curriculum to a backward checking process and, you know, we can sort of say, well, the kids have sort of, we know that they can do these 10 different skills. There's a gap here. Um, how do we then target that particular gap without then saying, here's a lesson for you? you know, how, how do you get the kids to recognise the gap? And then how do you then put them into authentic contexts where they can learn? There are some fantastic examples from around the world that I know of where that has happened but i'd like to see that more mainstream there are many schools that are still kind of comfortable i suppose using very traditional pedagogical methods for learning and perhaps haven't fully embraced the fact that we are now living in a pre-internet culture 
And learn life has understands this kind of paradigm that, that we find ourselves in and that the significance of place, working spaces, creativity, innovation are as much part of kind of the learning paradigm as you've eloquently described with us here uh, during this uh, conversation. My question to you is there are kind of, I see that you've established four understandings or five dimensions, not four, five dimensions, intrapersonal, interpersonal, planetary society and digital. That's the sense I'm getting around learn life from your posts and also uh, what I'm reading around the successes that students are sharing with, with the community. Now that we have moved into this remote learning paradigm, which you just spoke about a moment ago, can you talk a little bit about how learn life is preparing young people in that digital space? Yeah, good, another good question. If, if, I, if I start the answer by reflecting back into Australia and as to why we haven't moved into the digital space is, <laughs> in my mind, the problem for Australia is that we've done mediocre very well. And so, therefore, it's, it's been the problem that we haven't had to shift out of mediocre because we've got reasonably strong average results going through. So, therefore, we haven't really explored what does digital mean. When, when it comes to that digital space at Learn Life, I guess there are so many dimensions that you have to be aware of. There's a, uh, there's a great wheel that I've seen which has got sort of probably about at least 20 different little components to the wheel which look at everything from cyber security through digital presence through to digital footprints to how do you access information, what information do you need. I, I think the scope of what we do with the kids here is, is way too limited. So I guess for me, in the context where we have the ability to start talking about more things, you know, we, we can, kids need to have discussions immediately about their digital footprint. You know, let, let's, let's go back without any judgment and show me what we can find of you online. You know, and if they're embarrassing pictures and stuff, well, I'm, again, I'm not going to make any comment about them, but how do you, how do you actually understand the importance of those things? Then on the, on the same journey, uh, how do you know that you're protecting yourself in terms of cyber security, um, whether it's uh, from predators or whether it's from scammers or whatever else? So again, that, that, that requires conversation and it requires non-judgmentalism because kids will have made mistakes. And I think the moment they come into a conversation where they're made to feel awkward about their mistakes, they're going to clam up. And then ultimately we want to teach the kids the tools that they need to use to be able to demonstrate what they do know so that there's that whole component to the, uh, to the side. And the, the reality is that if you're in a music studio with the kids, they will know far more than any adult how to operate all of the digital tools that are available in the music studio, the same whether it's uh, you know, in textiles or in robotics or whatever else, is that we've got to shift from thinking that we should ever try and become the people that know more than the kids because we won't. We've already don't. Um, and I guess you know, for, that, for that, for me, is that that's a really important perspective to come from. The question is to know what are the tools the kids are comfortable with? Mm -hmm. How do we shape their use of it so that they can see some of the strengths and some of the pitfalls? Can you talk a little bit about what your perspective is about what real opportunities there are now for all the educational sectors? to totally reimagine schooling and learning post the coronavirus pandemic? Yeah, very, very, very interesting. You know, when you think about what led the New South Wales government to get rid of the school certificate, it was the economics. What's now happened with NAPLAN, it's the pandemic. What hopefully is going to happen for ATAR and HSC, it'll be the pandemic as well. Um, mm -hmm. The question is, yeah, do, do people revert 
at the end of a pandemic or do they move forward? And I guess my hope is that they can move forward. I think part of the problem, and it's what, what's been caught out, not just in Australia, but around the world, is that many educators have spent a lot of time and research on what does work in the remote world. You know, there, there are some outstanding examples of, of learning and creativity in the remote world. The problem is that the politicians, and, and I'm not going to be too negative here, but the, the political world is based on a three or four year cycle where people need to get revoted back. And that drives the design. Now, this stuff for the digital world has been around for at least two decades. You know, the, the reality is that the governments have now been caught out because they have not focused on what does good learning look like in the remote learning world. And yet business and other organisations have, they, they can adapt. They're shifting very, very quickly to that because many people have actually learnt, you know, <laughs> that anywhere, anytime, any in, you know, type um, working contexts. I, I think the challenge post-pandemic will be how do we stop people reverting back to what they think is important because we know it's not important. You know, we, we know already that, you know, if, if I talk about NAPLAN, I, I've watched for a decade teachers get gradually stressed by the concept of school league tables, by parents spinning out about the results for a child and now, really, you know, what what a child does in May for a result that comes out in September or October is ridiculous because the child has moved on anyway. So that the the whole process for me was um, was initially well thought through, but it became corrupted pretty fast. You know, that, that's the reality for me. I don't want the same thing to happen. As a result of um, people will make mistakes as they uh, they move to remote and online learning. They will try and replicate school. They will try and. Uh, They'll try and have kids sitting in their school uniform in their lounge rooms or their bedrooms um, joining in a timetable class. That, that's all going to be a mistake because the digital world is an agile, adaptive world. It's not a rigid, controlled one. And we're going to have to learn that the kids are going to have to be given empowerment to work out what do they need to do and how do they want to do it. Now, what tools do I need? Um, what's my challenge that I'm going to try and solve? And I would say in most cases, those challenges need to be social. They need to be involving kids because otherwise the kids will feel isolated. So we actually don't want kids working on worksheets separately. We actually want them working in teams where they learn, they work out their own strategies for a team-based approach. Um, I think that's the opportunity before us. And we've got to make sure that those that dialogue, I think, is shaped Right from now, I sort of was saying years ago, you know, we've got to invent the future, not prevent it. And I think now more than ever, we've actually got to step up and actually look at the best example of all, uh, examples of what's happening with the resource sharing, with ideas sharing and everything else, and enable people who have unfortunately not been launched into this world beforehand um, to know how to do it. I read that there was a university student in in New South Wales who made the comment that they were fearful of moving into the online environment because they said that they knew that their lecturer didn't even know how to stop a an automatic play on a YouTube clip. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I read that as well. Yeah, yeah, and I thought that was pretty telling. That was pretty. Yeah. Stephen, Stephen, talking with you is is like unbottling a soft drink that's just effervescing over with ideas and with possibilities why is this learning work so important to you what drives you to keep doing what you're doing core i hated school i mean i, I went i was school in three different countries seven different systems 
the year that I loved the most was I was doing New Zealand correspondence course via paper, of course, and mail. Um, I managed to do the entire year's work on 38 days on a ship going from Auckland to England and then took the rest of the year off to explore castles. Um, I, I think that, <laughs> <laughs> I guess the perverted side of me that enjoyed that too much. So I guess for me now, I can't see why should we have an education system where every child doesn't enjoy it? I mean, I guess for me, that's the driver. Do you think that society as a whole, be it in Australia or in Spain or elsewhere, is ready for a vision of childhood that empowers voice and agency and that provides structure without repressive authority? I think parents are going to witness this in their lounge rooms. They're going to see what works and what doesn't work with their own kids. Mm -hmm. and, and hopefully that will become a a voter change as they then question the governments to say, well, we don't want our kids to go back into a school where they're all facing desks, facing the front, you know. Some of the kids at Learn Life have said, you know, we spent three years trying to learn English in a classroom where all I learned was the back of the necks of the kids in front of me. You know, we, we put them into a context where they are immersed in English and they want to have a special assistant and a person to help them. They're learning English in two or three months, you know, and, and in ways that they've never done beforehand. I think we're going to witness in the the changes that are occurring around the world with the remote learning forced upon everyone, people will hopefully start questioning everything about the old system and then start thinking, well, what's, what's new and what's fresh? I mean, the, the one thing that's pretty obvious when we come out of this is that the desire to be out into nature and out into the world rather than cooped up in a house is going to be absolutely overwhelming. The, the last thing any school should ever do is say to kids to come back into a classroom and get stuck. You know, I, I think, you know, again, we should be thinking about how do we, how do we prepare the kids for this, this re-immersion into nature and re-immersion into, into the communities. I think that's going to be a really big question because, again, the, the, um, the, the model from Helsinki of the city being the learning space, I think, is critical. I mean, just imagine if we did that in Australia and said, okay, for, for at least one day out of five, kids actually have to be out into their city, into the parks, into the museums, into everything else that they've missed. It's been a fascinating conversation with you today, Stephen, and we really appreciate uh, your generosity in being here and, and sharing such sage wisdom. You know, for mine, what I'm hearing is that Learn Life is is this kind of new learning village that is centred around the notion that learning can take place anywhere and at any time and that young people, they can access knowledge at a touch of a, of a button now. Therefore, schools, as if I'm going to keep using that kind of hardwired paradigm of schools and not learning villages and, or, um, or learning communities, uh, schools need to commit to kind of creative, authentic learning experiences that enable the learners to own, to curate, to engage and connect with deeper self place and the other. And uh, we just want to say thank you very much for being on today's uh, Game Changers podcast because uh, what you are doing is you're providing the world with a new mainstream and a new alternative of what could be. And what's the most profound element of it is, is that the young people in your care are actually co-producing the learning with you and you with them for their future. So thank you very much. It's fine, and I appreciate that you talked about the new mainstream because we actually call ourselves the emerging mainstream. We're not alternative. This is the, this is yep. the new mainstream, and it has to be. Thanks very, yeah, thanks very much, Stephen. It's been an absolute privilege chatting with you today. Good luck, and we look forward to talking with you in the future. Thank you. Take okay. care. 
The Game Changers podcast is produced by Oliver Cummins for Orbital Productions and supported by Circle, the Centre for Innovation, Research, Creativity and Leadership in Education. Go to www.circle.education. The podcast is hosted on SoundCloud. It's distributed through Spotify, Google Play and Apple Podcasts. Please subscribe and tell your friends you like what you're hearing.